And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your foot. David himself calls him Lord, so how's he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And as he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box, many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, have put, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, given by God because he loves us. You may be seated. I want to get us to search our hearts for a second. Think about something for a second. Whether we like to admit it or not, we all struggle with authority. For some of us, I want you to think back to when you were growing up and what were those words you most hated to hear from your parents? Because I said so. I don't know about you all, but I was like, I beg for a reason. Come on, Dad, don't give me the because I said so. Give me a reason. I just wanted to know what makes sense. Or I want you to think about something else. You're driving down the road, and you know what the speed limit is, right? And you're kind of thinking to yourself, wait a second, isn't there something that says, Tim, don't listen to this part, that I can go five miles above the speed limit and be okay? And then all of a sudden, you maybe not know it's Tim in the back of the car, but you look kind of and you see that police car in the back. And how do you, see, I just want you to check yourself for a second. How do you react? Tense up a little bit? I know typically I'll go, 10 and 2, officer. There we go. 10 and 2. Okay, you're aware of authority. Or, and I'll be personally vulnerable here a little bit. Have any of you noticed driving down Spruce Creek Road, which I have to drive coming from church to my home, so five, six times, you know, feels like a day, I'm going back and forth down Spruce Creek Road. They've recently put up a sign. You get this, Lexi? They put up a sign, and it tells you how fast you're going. Okay, and I remember the first time going through that, and I went 42. Oh, my. (laughs) And then the second time I went past it, it said something like 34. Thank you. And inside, I just kind of beamed. And I looked at Evie and I said, the sign's thanking me. This is really cool. And so now, every time driving down that road, I know that sign's coming. I'm going, it's going to thank me. And it says, and it's blinking several times, thank you. And I'm going, authority is thanking me. I really like to be affirmed. Or think about it in terms of our culture. That's individuals' response to authority. And I want you to think, how do you feel about authority? Think about our pop culture. There was a musician, his name is John Cougar Mellencamp. He had a song, it's called The Authority Song. You know what The Authority Song, the famous line out of it is? I won't sing it, I promise to you, even though the tune's going in my head. I fight authority and authority always wins. 
Think about the history of our country. Began with a revolution that among many other reasons and many other causes was to come out because they were coming out from the authority of the English crown. We wanted to determine for ourselves our own government and be our own authority. Why do we struggle so much with authority? Why is it so difficult, both individually and culturally, to submit to authority? Whether it be a parent, a teacher, a boss, a supervisor, marital relationships, anything in life, relationships with another, or to get the root, to the root of things, why do we struggle so much with the authority of God? Do we really understand the authority of God? Not just what it is, but what it's aimed towards, what it's directed for, towards what ends and by what means. The passage we're looking at this morning out of Mark chapter 12 is the final scene in the temple courtyard. Jesus, both in his teaching in the temple and when he calls his disciples aside and he's teaching them, both asserts and reveals the nature of his unique authority. It's interesting, Mark has structured his narrative around two fundamental questions. Who is Jesus and what did Jesus come to do? And in a sense, this passage that we're looking at this morning can be seen almost as a summary, a condensed summary, if you will, of Mark's entire gospel. The first part of the passage, verses 35 to 37, looks at who is Jesus? David's son is David's Lord. And the second part of the passage... Verses 38 to 42, what did Jesus come to do? And we're going to see he is more like the widow and not the scribes. He's like the widow who gives his all and not the scribes. His authority is directed completely toward our good and our salvation. And it is to the degree that we understand this, that we will be willing to come under his authority in our lives. We desperately need to have a proper understanding of Jesus' authority and see it as directed and aimed for our good. I mean, even think about the scripture we read in our confession section earlier in the liturgy. What is your reaction? And, and I'm not asking you to call out or raise your hand. This is just kind of think to yourself. When you read words like, whoever would save his life Whoever is committed to doing what who he wants, whoever does what is right in his own eyes, whoever determines his own fate, kind of all the things we're built to do, the promise is you will lose your life. Only he who gives up his right, gives up his agenda, renounces his very self. One commentator puts it, has a divorce with his very own self, will gain life. See, I want to know how does that impact your heart? Do you read that? I mean... I, i got to be honest, I don't read that and say, woohoo, good news. I mean, I would love to say that I jump out of my skin and go, that's what I wanted to hear. Renounce myself. What a, you know, I quote this all the time. Jack Miller, who was one of my mentors back in Philadelphia way back in the day, used to say, cheer up, come and die. It's a great way to come and, li come and li live. How many of us hear that? Cheer up, come and die, and are thinking, that's what I came to church for this morning. That's really exciting. See, that shows us kind of we have an ambivalent love-hate relationship with authority. 
How does Jesus show us his authority in this text? Well, in two ways. First of all, he gives a riddle, asserting his authority. And then secondly, he reveals a contrast, demonstrating how he exercises his authority. A riddle that claims and asserts his authority, and a contrast that demonstrates and exercises his authority. Look at me at verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord. So how is he his son? You can almost see Jesus kind of go, head scratcher, isn't it? What do you think, scribes? You have an answer for that? Christ is the son of David. Huh, David died a long time ago. How could that be? Let's see where we've been going. Put this in context for a little bit. For the last couple of chapters, what's been going on in the Gospel of Mark? There have been various groups of Jewish leaders, part of the Jewish leadership, Pharisees, Herodians, scribes, Sadducees, so whether they're political leadership, religious leadership, the scribes are kind of the legal experts of the day. They're all challenging Jesus, trying to discredit his wisdom, discredit his authority, trip him up, embarrass him. So what does Jesus do? He turns the tables on them. He's basically embodying what he said in another gospel to his disciples, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We kind of see Jesus doing that here. He asks while teaching in the temple a question about David's Lord and David's son. And one commentator described the situation this way. He says, who exactly will the Messiah be? What can we say about him? The question belongs here in Mark, not least because, as we have seen, what Jesus had done in the temple had raised the question, who did he think he was? And the implied answer was, the Messiah, the one who has authority over the temple. Now, let's acquaint ourselves a little bit with Jewish history. It was an accepted, undisputed fact of Jewish history that the Messiah, the great coming king who was to come, would be born from the family of David. No one disputed the promises of the Old Testament, things like 2 Samuel chapter 7, that says, and your house and your kingdom. This is the promise God's making to David. Your house, your descendancy, your lineage, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That is an undisputed fact. Is Jesus somehow denying that the Messiah would be a descendant of David's? Absolutely not. Of course not. What Jesus is doing, and please remember the main point here, he is using a riddle to assert his authority. He's turning the tables on legal experts, on scribes who are trying to trip him up, who are trying to test him, who are trying to challenge him. He's turning the tables on them, challenging the idea that the Messiah will simply be an ordinary human king from David's line. For the Messiah will not be just an ordinary human king. David's son will be David's Lord as well. We need to see this as an absolutely remarkable, extraordinary claim. Another commentator put it using Psalm 110, written by David. This refers to someone David calls my Lord. Someone, in other words, who was apparently senior to David, not junior as a descendant would be. It raises, it begs the question, who can this be? 
What it appears to be saying is that when you understand Messiahship in terms of this psalm, you find that the Messiah, who will of course be a descendant of David, will also be one whom David rightly calls Lord, Sovereign, Supreme. What Jesus is doing here is he's raising the corner of the curtain that hides the biggest secret of all. Not only is he the Messiah coming with royal authority to Jerusalem and the temple, not only is he going to die to bring about the kingdom, he is doing all of this not simply as David's son, but as David's Lord. You need to see that Jesus is pushing the envelope here as we're moving forward in Mark's gospel. You have to remember that throughout Mark's gospel, Mark would narrate various healings, works, miracles, different things. Remember the time, for instance, Jesus cleansed the leper. And he would continually charge him. Okay, I've healed you. Don't tell anybody. Be quiet about this. You know, don't. He charges people all, you know, all the time. Don't tell. And of course, what do people do? You got to see what this guy did for me. Kind of the opposite now, isn't it? Jesus kind of doesn't say, shh, to us. What does he say? He says things like, go and make disciples of all nations. And we, instead of telling people what the Lord has done for us, we go, shh, I'll just get along with you and be nice to you. But now, what is he doing? Now he is more openly asserting his authority over the temple. Chapter 13, he's about to lay judgment on the temple. That his messianic identity is in the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of Israel's story, his being Messiah, the hoped-for king, and it will get him eventually killed. See, what does this remarkable claim mean for us? What does this remarkable claim mean for you? David calls him Lord. Do you? And what does it mean if we confess him as Lord? Are we more like the person Jesus is challenging in Luke's gospel? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? See, what does it mean, practically speaking, to call Jesus as Lord? Probably my favorite quote, I've used this before, is a quote that says, what does it mean then to allow Jesus to be Lord of our lives? Just this, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. If Jesus is our Lord, then he is the one who controls. He is the ultimate power. There are no bargains. We cannot manipulate him by playing let's make a deal. If he is Lord, the only option open to us is to do his will, to let him have control. Of course, Jesus remains Lord, whether we accept him or not. His lordship, his essence is not affected by what we choose, but our lives are drastically changed by this choice. So what is your Lord? Functionally, what is it that controls you? Is it power? Is it control? Is it the opinions of others? See, I have to admit this hit home when I'm driving down Spruce Creek Road and I see that sign and I see how much I am controlled by a stupid sign telling me thank you. How much I'm controlled by the affirmation and the opinions of others. See, we're not talking about what intellectually. Intellectually, I've said for almost 40 years, Jesus is my Lord. I'm talking about functionally, what is it that drives your heart? What is your greatest desire? What is it that moves you to come under the lordship of Jesus? 
See, how do we grow in living under the lordship of Christ? We have to understand not just the fact, the assertion of his lordship, but we have to understand the direction of his lordship. And that brings us to our second point, how Jesus reveals a contrast, and this contrast demonstrates the direction, the exercise of his authority or his lordship. See, we've looked at the riddle that asserts his authority. Let's look now at the incident. Verse 38, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. So he's turned the tables on them. Now he's giving a warning about them. And who are the scribes? Well, they like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces. They want the best seats in the synagogues, pieces of on- places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him. So in other words, teaching moment for the disciples. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Okay, so far we have seen that David's son is David's Lord. What is the direction of that lordship? What does he do to demonstrate the exercise of his authority? As one commentator put it, this passage is therefore pointing towards something which again has been bubbling up under the surface ever since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and will come to its head when Jesus confronts Caiaphas in chapter 14. Jesus is claiming authority over the temple, claiming indeed to declare God's judgment on it, not simply as a prophet, but as the king, and not simply as a king, but as the true priest, and not simply as the priest king, but as the living embodiment of Israel's God. So you remember, in a sense, I said earlier, this passage is a summary of Mark's entire gospel. The first half of the gospel asking the question, who is Jesus? The second half, what did Jesus come to do? In the same way, verses 35 to 37, who is Jesus? He is Lord. He's ultimate authority. And now, verses 38 to 44, the second half, what did this ultimate authority come to do? He came to give his life, and he came to give his all. See, you have to realize it is very easy to misunderstand passages like this. It's very easy for us to see there and and kind of look at it and kind of go, okay, I see what Jesus is doing. He's saying, rich people, bad. Poor widow, good. Eliminate bad, imitate good. Friends, that's not what the scripture is all about. We have to learn to read and interpret Scripture through the lens of their always pointing to Jesus. See, the Scripture, the teaching of this text is not look at the widow. What a wonderful example. Live up to her example. That is not what this is saying. This is saying look at the widow, contrast her with the scribes and the rich people, and see how the widow points to Jesus. And what it teaches us about Jesus. See, Jesus is demonstrating what he came to do. He came to give his all. He came to give 
to you and for you. And he's doing so through a contrast. So he warns about the scribes. He begins by saying, look at them. Say, what do they do? They are all about self-promotion. Walk around with long robes. They want, they want you to say hi to them in the marketplace. They want the seats of honor at the feast. They want the best seats in the synagogue. They want all the attention. They are all about self-importance, self-promotion, self-inflation. And Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sits down in the treasury area and he begins to observe what's happening there. And he looks down and he sees how the rich people are giving such large sums. And he highlights the contrast between them who can afford to give. They're giving out of their abundance. And this poor widow who puts in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And what is Jesus' point here? He is not attacking riches. He is simply putting, pointing out this widow's sacrifice, that her sacrifice was total, that she gave her all, and that she points to something that's going to happen in a few chapters in Mark's gospel. She points us to Jesus, who, as Paul said to the Philippians, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself of only a little bit of himself, emptied himself of some of himself, emptied himself of his abundance, emptied himself of what he could afford. No, emptied himself of everything, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One commentator put it, when David's Lord becomes David's son, he did not use this as a means of gaining popularity or wealth, but gave up his life. And once again, when we read this story in the light of Jesus' riddle about David's Lord and David's son, we discover a strange affinity. One might have thought she was merely putting in two copper coins, but in fact she was putting in everything she had. One might have thought that the Messiah was merely David's son, merely a human king, a human king among other kings. But in fact, Israel's God has given himself totally, completely, and he's given all that he had and all that he was, and he did so for you, and he did so for me. Paul wrote, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Ponder that statement and dwell on that, how amazing that is for a second. Though he was rich, how rich was Jesus? Did he just own this chair? Oh, maybe he's pretty rich. He owns the Grand Canyon. Oh, wait a second, he's richer than that. He owns a Swiss. How rich is he? He is the sovereign Lord of Lords and King of Kings who owns it all, who our very breath right now is dependent upon his goodness and grace. He is sovereign and supreme, and he made himself poor, emptying himself. He did not give what he could afford. Well, maybe I'll just throw in the Grand Canyon here. And but it's through his poverty, through his self-emptying, through his self-giving that we become rich. And how rich do we become? 
Paul said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with four out of ten blessings that are in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How does Jesus exercise his authority? He exercises his authority in emptying himself completely and totally in order to bind up his heart with you. You are his life. He gave his all so not to lose you. He was willing to lose heaven and lose earth and lose it all so he would not lose you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And what is going to move us, change us, that we will live more fully under his lordship, his kingship? The assertion that he is king, that won't work, friends. We can assert all day long that he is sovereign. It's true. It will not move us to worship and to live for him and give ourselves totally. The only thing that will move us, why did Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Because only Jesus Christ giving himself for you, only Jesus Christ emptying himself for you will move us to living for him coming under his lordship. See, this widow, recognize this. This widow, wonderful picture it is. Beautiful example is not a picture for us to imitate. Yes, as we are in Christ, we can reflect more of our heart and more of that. But the point of the scripture is not say, look at this widow, imitate her. It's a picture of Jesus, who though he is Lord, David's son is David's Lord, did not consider his lordship something to be held as a means of self-promotion like the scribes. But he used his lordship to, like this widow, give everything, totally, completely, and to do so because he loves you, to do so for you. He gives us all, everything he had, and did so for you. He is the better widow who gives his all so that we can have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, I pray that we would understand. I pray for my own heart to more deeply understand the gospel, to not look at your word so much as something that I'm supposed to, a principle to follow or something to imitate, but instead, oh Lord, may we see Jesus May our longing and our ache, what will move us and change us is seeing Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, thank you for your word, for giving us your word to reveal and take us to Jesus and unite us to him in whose name we pray. Amen. We respond to the Lord now in a time of prayer where we pray for one another and we pray for the needs of the church and we pray for the ministries of the church. And one of the things I want to remind us of and do this not just as a reminder, but also for our own prayer life, is today is something that in the church they call Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And it's done because uh, on this day or this particular week around this time uh, in 1973 was when Roe v. Wade legalizing federal abortion uh, was made legal in this country. And it's a tragedy, and it's something that you know, we say the words Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and yes, one application or implication of that is an evangelistic one, he's the only one to the Father. But do we recognize he is the life? The implication is that everything we do and are about is to be about life. And so I want us to be praying, praying for the ministries that we partner with, ministries like Grace House and Resources for Women, and pray for the many who've been touched uh, 
and impact it and pray. You know, it's interesting in our Spruce Creek Bible reading, I don't know how many of you are doing it. It's still January, so we might be keeping up so far. You know, we haven't gotten to Leviticus yet. It's good news. But reading yesterday out of Acts chapter 20, I was struck by the Apostle Paul speaking to the, el- the Ephesian elders, calling them to himself. And he says, I don't even count my life as worth anything. I don't even see it as precious to myself, except unless I may finish the ministry God has given me. I may run the race, kind of finish the course he's given me. And he says that course is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I pray that we would be a church committed to testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Let's respond in prayer. Part of our prayer, Lord, may it be a lament. A lament over the tragedy of abortion. A lament over the tragedy of the many lives it has touched. A lament not only after the fact of abortion, but how many people have been impacted and are still mired in guilt and mired in shame. Oh, that we would testify to the gospel of the grace of God and be a church that declares, come to Christ, receive forgiveness. Your guilt has been removed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray for ministries like Grace House and Resources for Women. We pray, Father, for the help they are offering, the good they are doing, the counsel they are giving, the practical things that they're doing. We pray, Father, that we would see this need and that we would help and that we would minister and we would be a bear witness to your glory and that we would in word and deed testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Father, raise up many servants to do that. And Lord, change our nation. And change our nation by changing the church. Help us to be more faithful. Revive your church, Father, we pray. Revive, we have no power to do that of our own, so we just call out. It's fascinating that in every history of every revival, they have begun not through any technique, not through any um, program. They've, done, they've happened. You have, you have seen fit to move in the history of the church through people coming together to pray, to seek your face to turn from their wicked ways. You are a God who indeed hears from heaven. So we call on you. We pray. We turn. Father, thank you for your people here at Spruce Creek. Father, I continue to lift up Lois and Bill. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen them, help them to recognize they don't have to hold on to you, for you are holding on to them. Lord, we pray for many others. I think today, and as I got a call earlier this morning from Nancy Sheffy, whose mom passed away. So I pray for her, and I pray for their family, and I ask, Lord, that you would comfort them, that they would turn to you, the God of the Bible, the God as you reveal yourself to be. Your word does say, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, Father, we ask that. We pray for the ministries of the church. Father, I thank you for what Jamie is doing with the women's ministry, and I pray, Father, for not only the women's fellowships here, the Titus II groups, the Bible studies, but I pray, Father, for our relationships and the fellowship. And I pray, Father, for the Presbytery event to come. And I ask, Father, that your blessing might be upon that, that many would be encouraged, and that would, it would be a work of making disciples. And Father, as we think of missions, Lord, this morning I do want to pray for the Nara people of Africa.
126,000 people in an area east of the Sudan that do not have the word of God. How can they believe if they have not heard, if they do not have the word? The greatest need there is for laborers to be sent out into the harvest who have the unique ability to translate the word into their particular native tongue so that they could hear and understand the revelation of your grace. Raise up servants who could do that. We pray, Father, for these 126,000 souls. Give us a heart for the nations as you have a heart for the nations. The commission you gave us is go and make disciples of all nations, and may we be obedient to that because you've given us your word. So, Father, we respond, and I pray, Father, that you would restore us. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.